While this podcast will cover information about how to access therapy and other mental health services, it is not intended to be a substitute for said services. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. If you feel you are in need of mental health assistance, please seek out licensed professional care in your area. that type of therapy podcast. Welcome folks to Mental Health Quest, the therapist office and beyond. We're here to answer your questions about mental health, including how to access it, what it looks like, why should you do it? All of the above, and so much more. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Charlene. I am a LCSWC. I'm a certified therapeutic game master, and my pronouns are she, her. And let me introduce my co-host, Benjamin. I am Benjamin Tynes. I am a psychology doctoral candidate, a registered psychological associate in California, and my pronouns are he, his him and we have a special guest on today uh, we have dr isaac tights how are you doing today hi everybody uh i'm doing pretty good uh once again my name is dr isaac tights i am the uh, head psychologist for all mind health a clinical psychological services corporation in california working with uh, kids and adults so basically kids of all ages have a variety of issues sleep and, uh, of course, ADHD. Yes, and this is our ADHD episode. Benjamin, read the, read the awesome things that the doc has done. Yes, so um, Dr. Isaac Tynes is a clinical psychologist, published author, researcher, and speaker who treats a wide variety of issues with specialties in sleep treatment and solution-focused therapy for patients of all ages. He earned his PhD and MS in clinical psychology from Palo Alto University with his BS with honors in human development from Cornell University. He treats patients struggling with depression, anxiety, inattention, impulsivity, pain, concussion, bereavement, relationships, and autism spectrum behaviors. Dr. Tai specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, also known as CBTI, the gold standard for insomnia treatment, imagery rehearsal therapy, which has been empirically proven for nightmare reduction, and lucid dreaming therapy, a new treatment using your awareness of being in a dream. Dr. Tights uses solution-focused therapy to build on all clients' strengths and with empathy and occasionally humor. He connects with youth through their favorite media and pop culture. We all love pop culture stuff here on this podcast. And he uses that interest to develop creative solutions for personal and interpersonal success. We are so very happy to have Dr. Tights here with us. And for those of you who might have noticed, yes, we are brothers. And what a great introduction. Thanks, bro. <laughs> I was going to say that then was like, oh, I'm going to let Benjamin do it because <laughs> that's your brother. Um, so like we said, this is the ADHD episode and we are excited to get to it. Personally, I am excited to get to it because as our listeners may have heard before, I have ADHD myself. So it definitely will be a great episode. So first, what we usually start off with, uh, Dr. Isaac, is we ask for kind of a definition of what ADHD is um, in kind of like colloquial, down-to-earth type of terms. Sure. Yeah, I'm not going to go through the whole diagnostic and statistics manual and read every boring detail, because then that will trigger your ADHD and you'll tune out. Not what I want to do. So, in essence, um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. We used to call it ADD for attention deficit disorder and then ADHD for hyperactivity. Now we recognize this just kind of an umbrella version. And there are different types. So, in essence, it is the difficulty of the individual to either give attention or to maintain attention to their own body. So there's the inattentive type where you get really easily distracted. You can't stay focused. Squirrel. 
Exactly. <laughs> and there's the hyperactive type, where you can't keep quite, you know, the sensory attention of your nervous system to your physical body. So therefore, you will interrupt things, you'll have an idea, and you'll impulsively to go and do it. It's not exactly or uh, OCD, but there are overlaps, as with most of the other disorders. So basically, whether you can attend with your eyes and ears or attend with your body and your mind, and as I'll talk about a little bit later, for kids in particular, there is the deficit of how much attention they are receiving and how well they can engage with it, but that's not a diagnostic category. Definitely squirrel and uh, moving in my seat a lot. That was me. That was me. Uh, it, for a long time in my life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> so, um, so we also like to kind of go into, you know, what does ADHD actually feel like? And I think, you know, having the di- you know, kind of the the therapist version of it, and then since Benjamin and I both experience it, kind of going through our experiences, what that looks like for us as well. But what does it actually feel like? you know, for someone who has ADHD? Um, what are some of the difficulties? You know, what are some of the advantages? Those type of things. That's a very awesome question because there are some of both. Obviously, to be inattentive, to not be able to focus on one thing in particular, it could be very annoying. You're wanting your stimulation, whether it's your, your eyes or whether with your body, you've got to move, you've got to groove, you've got to fidget, you've got to use a bunch of materials. And nothing quite holds your attention. So you lose track of things. It's like your audio channels are cutting out or something more interesting is going on. The TV channels are changing. So school is really difficult. It's hard to stay focused. Work can be challenging because you just can't stick with the the task. And if you don't know what's going on, that can become very stressful for you, which is why can't they focus? Everyone else seems to focus. Or even worse, the anxiety might arise as to, I'm going to just fail again tomorrow. Or, you know, this is my future forever. I'm just, uh, you know, in, uh, lost in the world. I'm an idiot. I'm lazy. I mean, then depression can come to sink in. But of course, uh, multiple uh, disorders are more common, uh, the rule, than the exception. So those are what can happen alongside ADHD. But while one has ADHD, if you feel like you're, uh, if you're inattentive, like I mentioned, very distractible, very lost, uh, very hard to kind of grasp onto something, kind of you're lost at sea. Whether it's hyperactivity, though, it can feel like you're driven by a motor, which is one of the terms, the definitions, the uh, criteria that we use for diagnosis. It feels like you're too full of energy, that you've always got a thing to do. You're jumping all over the place. It, it, once again, is that I'm not in control of my body. Not necessarily that you're the Tasmanian devil spinning all over the place, but you're just not calm. You're just not at peace where you are. You have to go and do something to feel at ease or else your skin's going to crawl, your muscles are going to basically get the better of you. So once again, very frustrating, very uh, annoying, and especially for women can be, or, you know, uh, people assigned to female at birth uh, who identify as female, all all in told, most of my uh, female ADHD patients, unless their parents are diagnosed with it and know what to look out for, they don't get diagnosed until much, much later. I didn't get diagnosed until I was 35. Yes. And when I finally reveal how their whole livelihood of being maybe smart, maybe engaging, maybe a little bit jumpy, uh, could have been explained earlier, they get this light bulb moment and they realize, oh my goodness, my whole life could have been so much easier had somebody just told me to get a fidget toy, had somebody let me go run around a bunch, jump around on a trampoline, but we'll go into therapies later. So that's another disadvantage. But you also asked about advantages. And there is a really cool advantage that can come with having ADHD, which is called hyper-focus. Woohoo! I love it. <laughs> exactly. So for all of the difficulties staying focused, that balances out to moments where you are just in the zone, super focused, in flow, and you are just in it to win it. Granted, if you could direct where that is, that makes it even better. Because you could be in hyper-focus for your favorite show, and you just binge-watched all of it, and you did not remember to eat, and now it's two days later, and your weekend's gone, and but you know all of Buffy, so that's cool. That's a lot. 
But other folks can induce hyperfocus when it's time to work. They put on their best music, they get their fidgets ready, they got their best food and jams, and they maybe even told their family or partners, like, hey, like, you know, interrupt me when it's time to eat. And then they get their work done, and then they feel productive, and then they go and get to relax or have productive breaks. But that's, once again, therapeutic side. I have a question. Um, you mentioned, you know, the different kind of types, uh, you know, the inattentive and the hyperactive. Can people like shift between them over time? Like if, like for me, you know, and I'm sure you probably remember a lot, but in elementary school, I feel like I was more hyperactive than pure inattentive. Like I, I specifically remember bouncing all over the place and screaming and interrupting and being very loud. Um, but then now I notice that I'm not as hyperactive as much as an adult, but I definitely still have the inattentiveness. Is, is that normal to like shift? Yeah. Uh, the ADHD itself, uh, as we understand it, it is a cluster of neurons acting or interacting uh, inefficiently. So the areas of the brain that are in charge of either visual or auditory attention or impulsivity they do not, it's not necessarily kind of a binary like on off switch here and there. And then once it's off, you're done, you're good forever. As with most mental health issues, you got to keep working at it. It can add, it can flow. You can have an off week, month, year, et cetera. So it's reasonable to expect that where some of the neurons that were in charge of uh, motor uh, impulsivity can also trigger some of the and attention as well. It could be your eyes that are becoming impulsive. It could be becoming essentially your auditory attention that becomes impulsive. They're connected. They're related. There is a combined type where both are interplaying at the same time. So sometimes your symptoms will arise or fall as long as you're working on them, uh, as long as you're keeping attention to whether or not your attention is waning, then you'll find yourself able to challenge whatever you're feeling more impulsive or feeling more inattentive as we age, as we kind of develop, and especially as you get different challenges. Before, little kids are more likely to be hyperactive because there's not a lot to be attentive to. So there wasn't anything to be distracted or, you know, be challenged to be distracted by. Or because you were clever as a little kid, yeah, you were able to still catch on to most things. So your inattention never got in your way. Once you had to be in class or once you maybe even learned how to keep your fidgets down, now it's time to focus and then it's boring. It's not interesting. It's you know, not entertaining or engaging to you and you're checked out as well. So obviously, the more and more you get into uh, writing, reading, and arithmetic, uh, it's definitely less intriguing and there's not as many distractions of toys and games and other kids that are willing to play around. So attention can start to seep in as well. You you had mentioned the the kind of fidgeting and stuff like that, and you know I never like saw myself as necessarily a fidgeter. Like yeah, I had to move or whatever. But when I started medication, by the way, I know we'll talk about treatment later. When I started medication, what decreased for me was a sense of restlessness. Like I would always have to get up and do something. I was always forgetting something. I was always like. Oh, I, I thought of this. I got to get up and do it and things like that. And if I was sitting still trying to relax, it was, what am I forgetting? I know I'm forgetting something and 20 million thoughts going through my head and me getting up and bouncing around and, and not being to do all that, unless I was hyper-focused on something, <laughs> which again, uh, didn't really have a choice about what I was hyper-focusing on at the time. But after medication, it definitely, what I found was that hyper focus you can induce it that like you had said i really like that that uh the way you said that you can induce it and like it gets laser focused like i started my business a year ago and i'm already probably further along than most year long businesses would be because i've been laser focused on the business right um so it definitely and it, as a female a young female i was talkative I was very, very smart. I was talkative. They'd move me around the classroom, <laughs> sit me next to somebody so that I wouldn't talk to them. I talked to anybody. <laughs> so it never worked. Um, and then you have the whole, um, 
you know, you're not achieving your best, you're lazy, why aren't you focusing more, you know, those type of things. You could be so much better at this, you could get so much better grades and things like that. Um, if you would just, you know, focus on it, you know, and it's like, uh, don't you think I'm trying? Thank you very much. Unless it was something I was really super interested in, like the Civil War uh, uh, module, I was absolutely fine with because that was really interesting to me. Uh, now, math, not so much until I got to statistics when I could actually put people in, in uh, experiments to watch behavior. That was the fun math. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes, it's applied. It's definitely applied. And being loud, Benjamin, is... <laughs> I still have problems with that. <laughs> Especially with uh if there's a coworker or uh some a therapist next door like right on the other side of a wall or something like that and there's no like soundproofing. Exactly. So having outlets or the right location, the right settings for your ADHD where to apply your skills or how to channel it correctly is going to be what helps it out. When I'm working with little kids in particular, uh, the impulsive kind of talkativeness for kids, we suggest to the parents, you know, let's do some karaoke or karaoke if you want to do it outside of the car, uh, on the way home from school. So the kids are belting out songs all the way home and everyone's having a blast. And by the time they get home, they're all yelled out. But this was the socially appropriate location to get your vocal cord impulsivity out of the way. You tuckered it out, you burned out the energy. And now you got a nice, calm, quiet kid who got his enjoyment out of the way. So there's a time and a place to do what you want to do. Even talk therapy, if the therapy you're doing has a lot of excitement, if you're, I don't know, playing some sort of a, a campaign of, of dungeons and or dragons, and you're having characters shouting out, you know, uh, you know, skills and, and abilities that allow them to uh, express themselves in a way that's like socially appropriate, then you get to be a loud therapist. And most likely you're working next to other therapists that know what they're getting themselves into. So having the right outlet for your ADHD is the crux of the types of therapies that are out there. So I just gave an allusion to a behavioral intervention, getting the right setting, doing singing. Uh, ben, I don't know if you, you uh, told the audience about your prolific vocal cords. <laughs> uh, let's just say that um, if I was excited, uh, they could hear me probably in the next city. Um, and yeah. it, it was really funny because if I, like, even now, I still have a fairly loud voice. And I joke with mm -hmm. my parents, you know, if I come home to visit and I'm saying, hello, I'm home, you know, if they're like, oh, I didn't hear you. Like, what do you mean you didn't hear me? First 30 years of my life, you heard me. Now you don't hear me. But uh, I, you know, I, now that you mentioned about the singing and everything, I don't know... I mean, obviously, we didn't plan it that way, but, you know, for, for the listeners, you know, I I started singing lessons, uh, started actually learning to sing opera in middle school, high school, um, and I did notice, now that I'm thinking about it in retrospect, I it definitely helped me to kind of calm down a bit, to be a bit more engaged. Um, it allowed me to kind of get a lot of energy moving in a right way and i didn't think about it at the time and my therapist at the time didn't say anything about it no teachers mentioned anything about about it uh it's just something that now that i think about it in retrospect it, it, it works that way um that being able to have time to sing uh loudly you know opera loud um and then especially when we were performing, you know, I was moving around and, and singing at the same time. So I got a lot of extra energy out. Um, definitely helped me now that I think about it. That might have been where a lot of the hyperactivity got funneled and channeled and, and applied so that your brain had room to get inattentive. But nonetheless, uh, having a, a behavioral intervention that applies to the person really helps out. So we all have our passions. We're driven. We're, we're drawn towards the things that we like. Might as well use that to heal ourselves. So when I do cognitive behavioral therapy, especially with the kiddos, I try to find what gets them excited, what gets them engaged. And I'll talk about kind of the treatments through the age ranges. 
Um, but you know, we'll start with uh, the adults first. And uh, if we have our if we have our passions, that can be the perfect target to apply a behavioral intervention. So with actions like uh, getting your exercise, burning out the energy, or getting your singing out. This allows a lot of that hyperactivity energy to be utilized in a socially appropriate manner and basically brings that hyperactivity down to just regular activity or focused activity. Um, getting fidgets for the hands or even the feet, uh, having those little pedals underneath the, the, ch the chair or even like sitting on a the medicine ball uh, allows you to be constantly moving, but your fidgets are actually working for you and maybe even developing your core, but I don't know, I don't use one of those. And uh, having just the appropriate uh, outlet for all these things allows our, our patients to actually get their energy out of the system so that they can operate on that neurotypical level. They may use a bit of excess energy, they may hit the gym a little bit harder, uh, they may do extra things before or after work or whatever, but by the time that their energy run out, now they can engage in a slightly easier manner, they have a little bit more control. Uh, you can think of this like, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, any of the Z fighters in Dragon Ball Z taking off their weighted clothing. They've been expending the energy and now they're free to do their best. As for the inattentive types, having a variety of uh, habits set up to focus and funnel and manage one's attention can be really helpful too. So whether it means using your calendar on your phone to help you remember things, because you're going to forget stuff. Why do we need to bother using our brain? We are not in ancient Greece. We don't need to remember all of the Odyssey. Put it in your phone or put it on uh, in sight on a calendar on your wall so that you're constantly able to see it and recognize, oh, I've got a thing to do. Great. Setting up what things you need to take with you outside, uh, like right next to the door. So on your way out, when you're in your rush, you just swoop it in and it's in your car and it's on your way. So a lot of these tricks and habits we can kind of brainstorm together in session, especially if it's focusing on attention uh, in conversations. That's a tricky one that also can overlap with the autism community. Basically, eye contact for active listening, paying attention to what it is that the other person is saying, maybe even imagining yourself in their scenario, making sure you're echoing or repeating the last few words that they're saying, but consciously so, or even better yet, reformatting it in your own words so that they hear that you're hearing them. These are all a variety of tricks and behaviors that if you keep practicing them, just like any exercise, any aria, any martial arts, or even any game, eventually you're going to get good at it. So your neurons, if you think about this neurobiologically, every time you're firing your neurons, they are going to get faster. They are The branches of the little dendrites are actually going to grow. There's really cool videos online of dendrites like growing extra branches every time they use. They fire faster and also every process that you're doing all together gets streamlined so it goes even faster. So just like physical therapy might allow somebody who had uh, difficulty lifting weights to slowly, surely get really good at it, you can do the same thing with your attention or even your self-control. So every week we would get together, we would make these plans all together, see how it works, and maybe even gamify it using the patient's interests so that it's exciting. So whenever I'm, you know, working with a college student and they're, you know, they just can't focus in class. Okay. Well, if it's statistics or if it's math, like how do you math it in a way that works best for you? Oh, five Hufflepuffs walk into a bar and, uh, the bartender says we only have, uh, 15, uh, butter beers. How many uh, butterbeers does each Hufflepuff get? And uh, the Hufflepuff you know, would just say, "Oh no, never mind. It's okay." Yeah, they would just know you first. <laughs> exactly. We'll all share. So, granted, that doesn't quite help for a math test, but it gets the patient engaged. It gets them excited. Like, okay, I can divide in terms of that. That makes it easy. I can find the right answer because I'm a good finder. So therefore, it becomes exciting to them, and they want to play along. The neurons of Harry Potter fun gets connected to the neurons of math, and now you've got Harry Potter math. What? Have fun with it. So that's for adults. And I can go into kids in a second, but since you had a question. Yeah, no, I'm just very excited about all this, because <laughs> I'm just like, 
this was the whole theory base right behind adding Dungeons and Dragons to or role playing games to my therapy practice was you know as a therapist trying to teach you know kids through adults you know social skills one on one that's not where you get to practice social skills that's not where you get to practice you know your cognitive behavioral goals you practice when you're around other people right and so i'm like and then as a therapist i'm sure as you both have experienced you know somebody telling you what happened in an event where you weren't there you didn't see what was going on you didn't know exactly what was going on sometimes it's really hard to kind of navigate that and i'm like well wait a minute let me create an actual like environment where i'm in control of it i know who's going to be there over and over and over again and you know they all have their goals that they're practicing every single time they come to the table and so it's just like what you just said with neuroplasticity, practicing the skills, you know, identifying and practicing the skills. That's exactly why, you know, I run the D&D game. And of course, for me, being the ADHD person that I am, keeping track of five characters, a storyline, goals, and, you know, all of that at the same time is going to keep my attention, especially the improv. When somebody throws me off, that is the best point. For my ADHD, because I can think of 20 things to say within one second of what, you know, what I could, how I could react to this person. So it's really, really fun and it's engaging. And like you said, like I was really finding just doing individual was just like that boring, repetitive routine after 12 years, that boring, repetitive routine of just seeing individual after individual after individual. I was like, I need to spice this up a bit because I need to keep my attention so i just just makes me excited because uh it's a new form like it's innovative like all these you know kind of nerd therapy superhero therapy you know rpg therapy it's all new you know and there's not a lot of research to back it up you know at the moment but it just kind of makes sense you know exactly and there's research coming out uh intrepid uh young researchers out there uh, just getting their research shops ready. Uh, you know, keep your eyes on the dissertations and you'll see which ones are arising from there. But ultimately, this is the next step uh, for an ADHD therapist when the empty chair technique is too boring or uh, the dynamic uh, approach isn't as dynamic enough uh, to get more of an excitement in there. And when the therapist is excited, then the patient's going to get excited and then they're really going to buy in. Just like when we had an amazing teacher in elementary school who just gets you riled up and excited about the Civil War or something. Okay, I'm on board with what they're doing. And that's what happens. That's what makes it work the best. All things considered, it is that fit between the therapist and the patient that will make any therapy work even better. It works even better than most therapies. So if the patient has ADHD and is pursuing something they're excited by, and the therapist is excited by the same thing, there's that match. As as for the youngins, this part gets a little bit tricky because I am not too keen on Peppa Pig or Roblox as much, uh, no matter how funny the memes are. But for the youngest of the young, between five and nine, obviously they're really not going to have as many connections with me. I'm not going to be watching Paw Patrol uh, for a variety of reasons. And so I won't be able to really get them excited, nor will I be able to be there as consistently to get their little brains growing. The parents are. This is where parent-child interaction training, or therapy, comes in, ECIT. So this is one of my favorite things to do because essentially I'm getting these kids and their parents in their homes, on their video cameras, in their playrooms where they're most likely to engage and I get the kids to lead the play. And so they're doing what they're excited by. They're following their passions, whether it's Legos, drawing, action figures, something open-ended, so that there's no rules to restrict the kids' play, nothing for the parents to keep them on. And then I have the parents, one-on-one, follow along with the kid and play with them. But in essence, keeping an eye out for all the appropriate behaviors they want to see their kids doing at home. So whether it's paying attention, being focused. If they're building a Lego and they build it the whole way through, they got to be focused. If they're drawing something and they, you know, finish the circle, that's a focus. 
if they are playing with a you know a pair of you know, action figures and they keep playing with them, they're staying focused. Or if it is being calm, managing that hyperactivity, great job sitting down on the ground, great job playing calmly, using slow movements. All of these things plays into the ADHD child's desire for attention. Here's a part that doesn't quite get into the diagnosis, is that kids with ADHD, whether they're hyperactive or if they're inattentive, they want attention. They feed from attention. They benefit from attention. So might as well use that carrot towards where you want it to go. So when the parent's attention is only basically applied for the appropriate behaviors, then the kid's going to keep on doing that because it gets mom and dad's attention. And when mom and dad are able to practice withholding attention towards inappropriate behavior within reason, if the kid is speaking loudly or if the kid is, uh, you know, striking out or things like that, that feels so much more boring compared to the excitement of Johnny, great job keeping your hands to yourself. Yeah! Why would a kid want to do anything that doesn't get this excitement out of their parents? This may explain why do most kids with ADHD tend to be more rambunctious is because essentially they're getting attention from their parents. They're getting their parents' faces to change and their voices to change. They pushed a button and they got a reaction. It's a video game. And it's a very enticing one. And for parents that are expecting their, you know, toddlers to, you know, nine-year-olds to somehow be small humans and be able to understand how rude it is as a roommate to throw cereal everywhere. No, they don't know that. It got them attention. It was exciting. It was engaging. You got to see Fruit Loops flying through the sky. How amazing. So, of course, they're going to keep doing it until they see something more exciting or something more engaging outside of that. Or that, that old behavior doesn't give any So, for any parents that are teaching with kids who are having ADHD and attention, this general approach can be very helpful. But the thing is that it's more important to be consistent on this and to course correct. So, if you have a therapist that you're working on that does PCIT, great. Meeting up with them every week. Doing the special playtime in front of the uh, in front of the therapist with the earbuds in the ear and having the therapist essentially using those same pride skills, praise, reflect, imitate, describe, enthusiasm, to encourage the child's behavior through the parent's pride skills. Then you get to really practice it. Those neurons start to connect, and then you carry it on at home every day. The kid knows they're gonna get special playtime, even if they've been an annoying little kid, because. Parental attention will always be there whether they've had a good day or a bad day. Granted, if they're sick or on vacation, it's not great. But in essence, the kid gets a constant stream of reinforcement, and that can spill over outside of special playtime when they're at the dinner table and they're passing their keys. Great job passing their keys, Johnny. Or whether they are at grandma's house and they're playing gently with the cat. It's that consistency that should continue. And that consistency, that schedule, that structure, it is so useful for kids and adults with ADHD. So once you find what works, you keep doing it, especially when times are tough. Yes, when you're sick. Yes, when things go awry. Yes, when the news is bad, which is almost every day. It's tough. And this is your medicine. This is what helps you. This is what has worked for you in the past. It's definitely going to work for you when you're in a rut. So keep on doing it. It is that discipline of doing what you know works or what you are willing to try to see if it works, as opposed to waiting for the motivation. Because motivation is really fickle. I tell my patients always, it's a fickle mistress. And if you're going to wait for it, you're going to wait for a while. But as one of my favorite authors, Neil Gaiman, once said, how do you write amazing work? You sit down and you write. Every day, you sit down and you write. He explained it that the muses, this concept of, you know, being a genius, originally it was one of the Greek muses, the spirits that come and engage and speak through the authors. There is no human that is a genius. It is, uh, you know, a deity of some sort that speaks through the human. And so when you set the stage for success, when you set up a constant habit, you're more likely to follow through. Your neurons will eventually trigger and fire and you will get the reaction you're looking for. Well, you're course correct, you're course correct, you're course correct. But 
all those amazing video game players who speedrun it, they did it a bajillion times until they got it right. They trained their nervous system to do it. Those musicians, you don't get uh, an amazing song like uh, Fat Bottom Girls by Queen. Heck yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Freddie Mercury is my spirit animal. Exactly. Now, granted, <laughs> maybe he did it all in one take and would be surprised, but that's just right. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty. But more likely than not, practice, 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 practice. And here comes the cognitive portion, knowing that it's going to take practice, reassuring the individual that you're not going to get it at once. You are flexing your skills. You are leveling up. You're working towards being that future awesome version of you. And yeah, there's little bits and pieces. There's kernels of that skill tree that you're growing, but you're not there yet, and that's okay. But you did a little bit today. Awesome. That was a little bit more than last week. You're doing a little bit more the next week. And that's progress. And even if you're taking a step or two steps back, if you're taking three or four steps forward, then you're going to succeed. So that's going to be the main part that the therapist can also check in with. Helping you understand that even though you're feeling bad, you're beating yourself up about not being that perfect, amazing, hyper-productive person that Western society wants you to be, you're rocking it even a little bit more than last time. So keep it up. Um, you mentioned something earlier, and I think, it, I think you meant it to be some kind of acronym that you tried to explain, praise or something like that. Pride skills, yeah. Uh, so P-R-I-D-E, those are the main components of PCIT. So when a parent is engaging with a child, or technically you can engage with the coworkers too if you want, you can praise the positive behavior you like to see. You can, uh, it could be something like, like I was saying, you know, Johnny, great job playing nicely with the cat. So you're promoting the exact behavior you're looking for, playing nicely or playing calmly or minding, listening to dad or listening to mom or listening to parents, however you want to reinforce this behavior. R would be reflection. So whatever the verbiage that the child is saying, if it's appropriate, if they're saying it nicely, you can reflect it back. Or if they're a little bit off and you want to kind of level up their speech. If a kid says like, oh, I like spaghetti. And you can say back, yeah, you like spaghetti. Technically speaking, you didn't call them out on it. You reflected that you heard what they were saying, that their voice and their vocal tone was appropriate. And you're letting them feel heard. So they don't need to vie for attention. They don't need to yell and scream. They know that you're listening. Okay, cool. That's all they wanted. Yeah. I wanted to 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 say something uh, to that specifically because you know there's a lot of YouTube channels out there now, TikToks of you know people who have ADHD and they're talking about their experiences and things like that, and they're getting really some of this um, language is getting really popular. So um, you know, with the neurodiverse movement, right? Um, we're talking, like we said, a little bit more about how this stuff can become strengths. But what you also experience and uh, rejection sensitivity is something that a lot of people bring up and that I know I suffer from as well. And it feels like it has direct connection to that attention that you're talking about. Could, would you be able to explain that a little bit? Sure, sure. So just as uh, the child of ADHD will seek for attention, they'll also be very sensitive to the lapse of it. That's where that distractibility comes in. That's where the impulsivity comes in. Uh, not having that feedback can be jarring, can be almost painful sometimes. So when it comes to a social context, feeling like one isn't being socially accepted can also be very jarring too. So that's why a lot of folks with ADHD might have a, a bit of a hard time interacting socially, or, you know, wanting to engage socially maybe misinterpreting social cues, and this is where maybe a lot of the ADHD and autism overlap occurs. Granted, uh, you know, eye contact can be tricky there too. There's so many other things to look at. But the cognitive portion of CBT could speak to this as well, that you know, blaming oneself, all of the kind of moral uh, reprimands that we got either from our parents, from society, from our teachers, or from ourselves for not being as focused, for not being as neurotypical, can come with a social cost. And if we're not aware of what's going on, we're just going to take it personally. 
we don't know that we have ADHD if we've just been coasting along with enough of our, you know, brilliance to get by in school, but the other kids just can't keep up with us. It's going to feel really lonely. And that brief moment where we can maybe get a friend and then they go away or they're busy and we just don't get that we can't constantly have that back and forth all the time forever. We can't get that constant stimulation. It can feel really lonely if we interpret it as such. So being able to balance not just the experience, the dynamic, but also the understanding or the schema of that is going to be really helpful. Yeah. No, and the the other thing too that that people mention is like I can't remember what they called it, but being able to get things ju- done just because there's another person in the room, like they don't actually have to be helping, they don't actually have to do anything. You know, maybe they are saying good job or something like that. You know what I mean? But um, that a lot of people experience like okay, if somebody's coming over the house, that's when I can clean the house. You know, if I know. You know, uh, my husband will be sitting down and I'll be like, okay, he's home. So I can do this, this, and this, right? Um, it's almost like, I don't know, people have explained it as like, just kind of feeding off of their energy or whatever, right? Um, but I imagine it has a lot to do with that attention too. Like, you know, oh, they're seeing me do this, you know, that, and I might get rewarded for that type of thing. In addition, it's not just the reward. But it, this is what you're referring to as called the second body. Uh, having another body in the room, having somebody maybe even doing that behavior makes it easier for you to do that too. You can imitate it, you can mimic it, you can synchronize with them. That's why singing is really easy here. It's easier to do with a bunch of people. Well, Ben's the expert on this one, so uh, you might have an easy enough time singing on your own. But when you have other people engaging in that same behavior, it's easier to do. Having a gym buddy. Whether it's an accountability buddy, somebody just get up off your ass, it's time to hit the gym. Or they drive over and say, like, you know, get in, loser, we're hitting the gym. Then you're able to follow through. There's the expectation. And there's also, yes, there's that social reward of people excited to do it with. Yeah, I got a friend to go and do this thing with. Let's do it. It's a lot easier to do. As opposed to having to listen to that internal version of you saying, like, come on, get to the gym. I mean, that can only speak so much for the next part comes in and says, it's time to watch. Whose line is it anyway? Whatever. So uh, having somebody in the room not even doing anything, but just read quietly. Okay, if they're reading quietly, I can do my stuff. Oh my gosh. That, I just like had a light bulb go off. <laughs> That's the way I got through college. Thank you, Lindsay, by the way, if you ever get to hear this. Uh, she would study for four hours at a time. And of course, I was not going to be able to do that. However, um, you know, I would be like, okay, it's study time. Lindsay's up on her, you know, loft studying. Now it's time for me to study. If I didn't have that in any way, shape, it would not have gotten done in any way, shape or form. Now I'm just like thinking about it. (laughs) I've noticed that too, you know, that having somebody doing the task, even if we're not technically doing it together, it feels like we're doing it together because we're in the same physical space doing the same task-ish thing. And, you know, you kind of feel like, oh, we're a team. And, you know, it becomes that kind of, you get that social connection, um, which, as you mentioned, is very difficult for people with ADHD to kind of feel comfortable with because they're not sure about. But, you know, because like, in social situations, you know, a lot of times people with ADHD, we're not sure like how to act, how to modulate our behaviors and our voices. But having that other person in the room that's doing the task, A, that shows us how to do the task, but B, we're doing it like, oh, we're doing it together. And, you know, I'm not, you know, doing it wrong or something like that. Um, and I agree with you, Charlene, having that person in college, I, I don't have just the one person. I had a couple of people, but like, I really could only do my homework, uh, if they were doing something too. And they didn't have to be doing the same homework. Like my roommates, uh, one year, they were all various different kinds of engineering majors. And I was the, uh, there's four of us in the apartment, 
three engineers and me a psych major. So obviously we had no classes together. We had, we were not doing the same assignments, but if the three of them are doing their kind of whatever stuff that they did, which was very intimidating with a lot of math and numbers and stuff, I was able to at least sit in the room and do my stuff because there was other people in the room. They were doing work, you know, was nowhere near related to my work, but it was work. And they were, they also were like talking to each other and engaging. And so I could have that also while still doing my work. And, you know, I, I definitely think that having that other person in the room, whether they're even doing the same thing as you or not, like it still helps because it feels like a social event. Yeah, and that the leading to uh, this does a very good lead into the neurodivergent movement, right? Which is, you know, that it is not all on the ADHD person to figure out how to live in a uh, neurotypical world. It also we found people, Benjamin, who accepted us for who we are, <laughs> and could handle the energy and all of that different kind of stuff. Um, but we're also able to help us direct our, our, you know, behaviors and attention in a way that was supportive. Right. So the whole point of the neurodivergent movement is like, yes, this can cause disability, but you don't tell somebody who has a disability, Oh, you have to figure it out on your own. Like, society has to adapt and we're talking about adults at work like we're talking about you know uh schools and phd programs and things like that like actually understanding how to keep an ADHDer's attention and how to support them it's important for institutions and other people to adapt to you know kind of how we do things too instead of us trying to adapt all to this neuro neurotypical world. Well, I mean, it it really is because, you know, for as as we've talked about for other you know conditions, having that kind of support, having people who understand, oh, okay, you need a little bit of support here. You need some assistance. We can work with that. Um, you know, and it comes back to the whole one of the big reasons why we started this podcast about you know decreasing stigma. You know, people do treat you know mental health conditions differently than medical conditions but if someone has a broken arm the school isn't going to expect them to still you know write the same way they're going to understand oh, okay you can't use your pen and paper you're allowed to use a computer you know or if if someone you know had any other kind of injury or medical condition their accommodations are made you know, so that way they can still be productive and, and you know, useful uh, and feel useful. Um, and so to have those kind of institutions and to have other people in your life, whether it be an institution or workplace or a teacher or whatever, or just a friend, someone who can blend with your, where you're at, um, you know, it can be very empowering actually. Um, and I think, you know, for when working with clients with ADHD, um, being able to, to obviously you have to kind of keep them to a certain, you have to help them modulate their energy levels, but also to be able to go with them where they're at. Um, you know, I, I've noticed that when I was working with, with children, you know, with ADHD, you know, yeah, I would have, I would have a couple different, you know, I would have this one game that we're playing. Okay. Well, he can't stay on the one game. So the second he moves to another game, as long as it's, you know, appropriate or whatever, I can follow along and, you know, I can help still maintain the energy and, you know, maybe I said, oh, hold on, you know, I know you want to play that game. We're almost done. Can you finish this one? Can you pull that last Jenga block, see if we win? Kind of thing like that um, to kind of still help them to learn how to finish tasks uh, without giving into that, you know, ooh, shiny squirrel kind of thing. Um, you know, it, it's, I think can be very helpful for a lot of people, um, either who, you know, do have ADHD themselves or who know someone who does, and they just want to be supportive, just kind of go with them, um, show them that like you see it because 
oftentimes just by you being there, like, you know, the whole second body studying thing. I mean, they didn't, my roommate did not know that they were helping me. I didn't tell them that I was working with I them didn't either. just because they were there. They were doing their work and I was reminded. They didn't know that that's what it was for me, but it was like, you know, just having that other person, you know, there can be very helpful and they don't even need to know that they're doing it. Definitely so if you or anyone you know has ADHD and are in need of additional services, they are available and sometimes even legally uh, re required for your schools uh, to provide you or your kids with a 504 or IEP. Uh, these are uh, individual education plans so that your setting is conducive to you. Just like a kid in a wheelchair needs a ramp. What's, why would you stop them from getting education just because of some impediment? Or your college can allow accommodations, extra time on assignments or quiet space for you so you can show your intelligence, not just your attention. That's not going to be the thing that gets in the way of you being the kind of brilliant person that you are. Or at work, being able to uh, get your time and your space to uh, have a fidget break or to have a nature break, to have a productive break and not feel as though you need to just constantly be drilling yourself at the office. No, that's not going to be what helps you do well. Technically, it's the business well. You can be able to operate in their best capacity and everybody succeeds. So making sure that you find out what you have and you advocate for what you need and help your family and friends in whatever manner, way, shape, or form that best suits them and keep on trying and searching until you get what works, then everybody's going to do well. I think this is a good place to kind of go into because you already did start talking about treatments and you know therapies with the PCIT. Are there other therapy modalities or treatments that uh, are effective when working with ADHD clients? There is recent research showing that neuropsychological uh, uh, feedback training is also very helpful. Uh, that just as we are doing the kind of neural growth through repeated behavioral activation or through PCIT uh, kind of the interaction with the parents is igniting the brain to do what it needs to do, there are fascinating uh, approaches where people will essentially sit at a computer or television and they'll have electrodes kind of stuck to their scalp just to receive information, not to submit or transmit any information, but basically it's reading which sections of your brain are activated or inactivated at very, very minute levels. Things that's really hard for you as the individual to recognize in yourself and me as the therapist to even see in your face. face. So as the individual is watching either a show or playing a game, when those sections of the brain start to uh, inactivate, uh, start to quiet down a bit, the screen itself might slow down, the audio might get a bit distorted, there might be more pixels or jump button might not work. And so that essentially will trick the brain into, oh wait, that, that's what we wanted, that's what was missing. So it will do a bit of that physical training for the brain, for the neurons itself. Granted, very exciting, very interesting, very engaging, very expensive. So if you find it and the insurance covers it, cool. But if not, it's the same crux of the therapy that CBIT will do for you as well. It's just getting you to do the actions and even practicing them in waking life and moving along. Uh, speaking of waking life, uh, the opposite is also very useful is to make sure that individuals get their sleep as well. One of the uh, non-diagnostic criteria for ADHD is interrupted sleep. Uh, or difficulty to sleep. If we're unable to get fully rest, then our nervous system is a little bit uh, more primed for inattention or hyperactivity during the day. So if this is ever an issue for you or for your friends with ADHD, family, etc., making sure that they get their sleep hygiene down pat will be really useful. So if they're able to get to bed on time, following that habit, repeated behavior. If they're able to use their techniques to get out of the bed, if they're awake more than 30 minutes, to lure themselves back to sleep with a book or a Sudoku puzzle, something that's not on a screen. 
uh, and then basically retraining their body that the bed is for sleep. Then their body knows they're going to get sleep from X o'clock to Y o'clock every night, even on weekends. And then they're going to be more rested for the day. They'll be more capable of practicing their techniques. Granted, if you get really good sleep, if you get that real consistent sleep so good that you're able to remember your dreams, you may even be able to practice some of these techniques in your dreams. You can practice your uh, uh, active communication with uh, your you know, dream characters. You can uh, get lucid and stay focused on one element of your dream, even when that walrus is coming by to ask to build that go-kart that you want. Like, oh, you're focused on that dream waterfall. <laughs> Granted, it's a bit tricky just to get good sleep to begin with. So that's the main thing I focus on. But every now and again, I get a prolific dreamer, and we're excited to practice that thing. Um, and I know uh, one thing that my, my college had actually offered was executive functioning coaching as well, um, which uh, I still have yet to avail of, which I probably should, uh, because, uh, you know, just to, to go through when you're trying, executive functioning is like learning how, which thing to do first, you know, putting all the steps in order and then getting motivated to do them. Whereas when I see a list it's not one, two, three. It's all of the things are important and I need to get them done right now all at once. <laughs> and so learning how to step back and uh, order those exactly. things. So executive functioning is one of those areas that if you're getting a formal uh, assessment battery, it will test for that specifically. And that might be uh, the, de the deficit that might be better explaining your inattention or hyperactivity. The opposite is also true that if you're able to practice your executive functioning, whether it is through basically flexing that prefrontal cortex, the last part of our brain that we've evolved just as of yet, uh, whether it is maintaining your mindful attention during waking life, or during the lucid dream, which uses the same areas of the brain, you're flexing that ability, you're practicing how to intentionally direct your focus to what you choose to be focused on, and you can practice a few of the behavioral tricks in order to make it more likely that you succeed in doing so, that you do not get uh, swept up by your ADHD and attention. In essence, chunking your tasks, that long list of everything you need to do, and you break it down in little bite-sized pieces, or three at a time, and you hide the rest of it, you just do the first three, you feel successful. You get that dopamine rush of getting the thing done, of... <laughs> crossing it out and feeling successful for it and knowing that that's all you needed to do. Or another trick you can do is set a timer and just hit go uh, or even a countdown timer for 10 minutes. You can do anything for 10 minutes. So you set that timer and you dive into whatever the first task was, whether it's doing your laundry, whether it's starting your essay, whether it is doing your exercise. And after the timer rings, well, you already are on a roll. Smarter Isaac than I once said that an object in motion tends to stay in motion. So if the uh, apple was hitting your head on that one, I was a new quote. And so able to keep on doing the action. You tricked yourself into it, but you challenge yourself. It's kind of like having a friend say, oh, I bet you you can't run faster than me to the end of the field. And they're running, and you're off. And once you're off, you can keep going. Within reason. Obviously, if you teeter out, if you're you know just not the right headspace for it, fine, switch brain space, use a different section of your brain to another activity, so your fatigue does not get in your way, your inattention doesn't take your energy away, but also your expectation that you need to be focused on the same thing for forever. No, you're not the same person as your friend that was uh, studying in the loft for four hours straight. You may have needed to do something more along the lines of the Pomodoro method, and when speakers are here, you're probably getting hungry. That means tomato is a little timer that people use when cooking their sauce. But there's apps for it on your phone. You set a 20-minute timer to do task A. But once that's done, you set another 10-minute timer to do productive break, uh, number one, which is something maybe not screen-based, but is screen-free, something that you can direct yourself to, maybe to look at nature, to go on a walk, to change your setting, to do some exercise, but you can easily come back from as opposed to TikTok or YouTube. You're able to bounce back from you know playing with your canary for a little bit 
and come on back and then do the next task. Or, like I said, use a different section of your brain that hasn't been pooped out until that one's done. And then the other one actually has been able to swap and recharge or maybe even process what you were struggling with earlier on. In fact, Einstein himself would take breaks from his physics uh, theories to play some violin. By using a different section of his brain, he's allowing that earlier components to settle, to process, we could even say subconsciously, or to make associations with the music that he was playing. So if you're feeling like you can't do it all at once, all right, Einstein, take a break. <laughs> and of course, the the last piece is medication, right? I know, uh, I don't know if, if uh, Dr. Isaac, whether you... Uh, you do medication at all or anything like that, but no. Um, but we know that, uh, yeah, we know that, um, you know, there are certain medications that help, you know, just from, from working where none of us are psychiatrists or, or medic, uh, people who, who give out medication, but, you know, stimulants. And then there's also, which people I uh, don't think know a lot about is, is there's actually medications out there that are not stimulants that can help with ADHD. So if you have like, you're, say you're 35 years old and you've uh, developed some anxiety around <laughs> your ADHD, putting you on a stimulant is not necessarily going to help because it'll up that anxiety. So there are non-stimulants out there um, that can take care of the ADHD symptoms, but not increase that anxiety, right? You know, all medication is kind of, you know, give and take. I do work with patients who do take medication. And of course, I prioritize that they uh, coordinate their care with their psychiatrist and make sure that they discuss all of the symptoms that they're dealing with, of not just the ADHD, but the anxiety and depression and maybe OCD and maybe autism, so that a good psychiatrist should be able to mix and match and figure out the best combination of primary effects and side effects. For example, if somebody's worrying about weight gain, medication that my lower appetite might be exactly what you need on that one. Or somebody who's worrying about difficulty sleeping, any type of medication that can result in maybe a, a crash afterwards that would have been difficult for somebody who's trying to stay awake, but for someone who's getting sleepy or wants to get sleepy, that will work really well. So making sure you've got the right psychiatrist, someone who actually listens to you, has considered everything that you're going through, and will work on it with you. That's going to be really useful. And you're right, there are different medications. They're not all stimulants. And even for kids in particular, some of the ADHD is combined time, but we don't want to overdo this poor kiddo's hyperactivity just so that they can focus in class and it might not really work. So mixing and matching with a pediatric psychiatric specialist is going to be helpful, not just a pediatrician and not just your primary care physician. Even though they are the number one first round source for getting psych meds, they're not the experts. Yeah, they might have taken a course or two in med school. Maybe they've even done a rotation. But just to be sure, you're not just going to ask your generic family doctor about some very specific and minute and specialized issue if you have you want to see a specialist. You're worth it, you're special. So get the right doctor, get the right team on board, get them talking with each other. Just the same way that parents would want their therapist to be, or parents would want their child's therapist to communicate with their school to make sure that their interventions are working to the best interest of the child, you probably might want your psychologist, therapist, to talk with your psychiatrist to make sure that the medication is working, that the techniques that the therapist is using to help you, the patient, get the right results you want, so that eventually you might not need as much of the medication. When I'm talking with my patients, I refer to medication as kind of like training wheels or water wings. It's there to help you learn how to swim, how to pedal, so that once you've got the hang of it, you don't need it as much. You can take less of it and less of it. And even have techniques so that when you're on a medication holiday or on an actual vacation and you need to be focused, you know what to do. Doubly so, if you've been practicing every day, then you're on the prime game to get better at it. Because doing your meditations and, and focusing on being mindful, you notice when you're getting off track, even when you took your medications, even if there's something extra stressful that comes in that your meds could not counter, but you're prepared, you're able to do it. 
So just as Batman is great and has all the utility uh, items that he can throw at the Riddler or the Joker or Poison Ivy or whoever else, if something else comes along and some crossover event happens that he hasn't prepared for, he's prepared to mind to handle, to improvise. So as you practice taking care of yourself, as you practice all these techniques to expand your executive functioning, no matter what happens, you'll be that much more prepared to handle what comes down the line. This is just all so exciting. It's so uplifting. That's actually a really good good way to, to put it. You know, you could be just like Batman. And I think we, we're pretty sure we talked about Batman uh, in our episode we're going to release uh, before this one. So I'm very excited. <laughs> but I think I think that's about it. I think we covered a whole heck of a lot. Um, Thank you, Dr. Isaac, for coming on. That was amazing uh, for me, myself, and hopefully for you you listeners as well. Um, and obviously, uh, you listeners, we want to thank you all for being here. Um, if you can rate and review our stuff on iTunes, that would be amazing so other people can find it. Um, and we're also here to answer your questions about mental health. So please send any questions you may have um, that we can cover on the podcast. Uh, if you'd like to reach us out to us individually, you can email at mentalhealthquest1 at gmail.com. Um, and our podcast is on Twitter and Facebook at MHQ capital P podcast. Where can we find you, Dr. Isaac, on the internet? Uh, you can always go to our website, www.allmindhealth.com. Uh, we also have a Twitter page, Facebook, uh, but all things considered, uh, if you want to reach out, you can just email at info at allmindhealth.com or you can give us a call at 949-522-7500. Awesome. And Benjamin, where can we find you? Uh, you can find me um, on Facebook and Twitter or, you know, for my other podcast I'm doing, My Hero Therapy. Uh, we have two episodes out. Um, Which are amazing. Thank you. Uh, you know, that one we don't get out as often as, you know, this one. Um, but, uh, you can find that one at, uh, My Hero Therapy Podcast and also email that one if you want to. It's My Hero Therapy Podcast at gmail.com. Um, but that podcast is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, please check it out. We will hopefully have some new episodes coming out soon. Uh, but that podcast is about the My Hero Academia anime and learning. What does it mean to be a hero in real life? Um, I think that is a topic that everybody wants the answer to. How do we be heroes in real life? So what about you, Darlene? Where can they find you? Everywhere. Just everywhere. Um, so I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Nat20Therapy. Um, I have a website at Nat20Therapy, www.nat20therapy.com. Um, you can see there's a theme, uh, and you can email me at cmcpherson.lcswc at nat20therapy.com. Um, I think that's it. Oh, yeah, we have this podcast. I don't have any other podcasts yet to be determined, but I think that's it. Um, otherwise, thank you again, Dr. Isaac, for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. It was a great, great, uh, informative episode. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you later. Bye. Please take care of yourselves and make today amazing. Mm-hmm.